What is a girl from Kazakhstan with a Russian accent who looks Chinese living in America doing? She is podcasting to give hope, motivation, and help you to lead a fulfilled life. I am Miru, and I'm that girl. You may know me as your savings pro, but life is more than money. I'm here to share my personal, cultural, and professional experiences so you can bring your experiences to life. We will talk about the currencies of life, family, career, business, money, and more. Welcome to the Miru Experience Podcast. In this episode, I would like to share about the book called Storyworthy. And I was actually honored to have the opportunity to speak to the author myself. And I will share some of our conversation in this um, episode. But before I share it, I just wanted to quickly introduce about the book. This book is basically a great way to learn how to tell your story and help yourself to be grateful, to help yourself heal and leave a legacy behind for your children, for your grandchildren. I mean, we all have great stories, but we don't take time to make it great, I guess, because we, as a human, we never feel our stories are significant enough. So what this book does is it helps you present your stories in an engaging way where author shares the tips and techniques, how you can construct, tell, and polish your stories. And Basically, anyone can learn how to tell an appealing story because everyone has something story worthy to express. And it is important to be able to tell your story so you can empower yourself and be happy and enhance your own life. I mean, this helped me tremendously. So I really want to share it with you. Check it out. I'm going to put the link on the on the podcast notes. So here you go. Check out my interview with Matthew. Learn how he writes and what got him into storytelling. And also learn how he manages his time. This guy doesn't waste time. He respects his time and he actually respects his sleep, which is something I never thought about it that way. So enjoy the interview. What got you into the storytelling? Because you say making stories come alive. Like what was the triggering point for you that you found that secret skill set? You know, it's tricky because when I was a kid, I told stories all the time. You know, I grew up with parents who didn't pay a lot of attention to me. So my efforts to get attention were often stories. You know, I I would tell stories to 
basically get people to look in my direction. And I used to use it to, to get girls to like me. You know, I discovered that if I stood next to girls and I told stories and made them laugh, then they were more likely to like me. So, you know, I think I was doing it for a long time and not really thinking about it. You know, it wasn't until I went to the moth in 2011 that I really started thinking of it as a craft, not just something that I was good at, you know, something that people like to hear my stories. You know, I was a novelist and I still am. I, I write novels. Before I started telling my own stories, I was writing fiction. So in 2011, when I went to the moth and I discovered that this is more than just something I do, but something that, you know, people want to hear and something that people work at, that's when I really started to started to pursue it in a serious way. But I, I think I've probably been telling stories for a very long time. I mean, even my wife, someone once asked my wife, um, when did you first fall in love with Matt? And she said, you know, an evening that we went to dinner before we were even dating and I started telling her stories. She said that was the night I decided I wanted to spend time with him. But also I like about the, the how you teach people, I guess, homework for life. Yeah. So maybe can you tell me a little more about it? Like how can people maybe start using that concept on a daily basis? Yeah, well, I think what you said was right. It has to be on a daily basis. You know, it was my attempt to find more stories. I was running out of stories to tell and I wanted to be on stages. And I didn't want to be that person who sort of told the same, you know, 12 stories every time. So I wanted new things. And I had figured out that when I find stories in my life, my life feels more complete. They often, they often unlock parts of my life I didn't see before and they really can be healing. So I figured the more I find, I think the better I'm going to be. So, you know, I'm an elementary school teacher. So I gave myself a homework assignment, which makes sense. It's what I do as a teacher. You know, essentially I said, every day I have to do this. Every single day I have to look at my day and say to myself, what's the most story worthy moment from my day? Like what would be the story that I would tell from today if I had to? Even if that day doesn't have anything that's really story worthy, I forced myself to find the thing that is the most story worthy of all the boring things that happened that day. You know, and I think it has to happen every day. So I wanted it to be small. So rather than writing out a story, which I know I wouldn't do every day, is an Excel spreadsheet. So I only allow myself the length of a computer screen, you know, the length of that one cell that I stretch across the screen. In that cell, I write down what I consider the most story-worthy moment of the day. And what happened over time was sort of magical for me. I thought I would find maybe one new story per month, but instead what I've discovered is that so many of my days have stories or pieces of stories or anecdotes that will become parts of stories. Like I just see these things that I used to not see before. I recognize even more the, the, how the small story lies all in our time and we, we just ignore them. We just don't see them or we toss them away. We just sort of do that with our time. We're so disrespectful to our time and our memories of our time. We, people throw whole decades away. You know, you ask someone, how did you spend your 30s? And they have a hard time like saying more than a few things. And it's just crazy that we just allow our time to be tossed aside like that. And so, and so I started doing it every day. And now it's very rare that a day goes by and I don't find more than one item to record in my homework for life. And it's creating that legacy that you described. You know, when I pass on someday, I will have this homework for life, a record of every single day of my life. Imagine like if you had your grandmother's homework for life, you know, a few sentences about every day of her life, it'd be the most treasured thing you owned, you know? 
So my kids know I do it and there's private stuff in there. So it's not something I share with them now, but when I'm long gone, they're free to see all my, you know, all my ugliness and, uh, you know, all the unfortunate things that I might've been thinking from time to time. So, you know, that's creating that legacy. And from it, I find the stories that I tell on stages and the stories I write all the time. I think the other thing with the homework for life, I feel like, like you were saying, the more you do it, I think it also brings that uh, gratitude feeling that the little things make you feel thankful. And that's how you can heal, I guess, when you're feeling ungrateful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My, my life feels, I think, fuller than a lot of people's lives, you know, because regardless of the day, there's something meaningful about this day, you know, and I think most people live life sort of allowing days to just wash away. And for me, there's always a moment or more than one moment of brightness in every day. And I do, I think I'm a, I, I actually think I'm a happier, more positive person as a result. You know, people get a little frustrated with me sometimes because I'm oppressively optimistic. You know, I'm, I'm always sort of in a good mood and I'm always sort of feeling great about my life. And I think a lot of it has to do with homework for life and the awareness that I now have about the world around me. Also hit a good point in terms of people being overly busy. And then when I was researching about you, I'm, you know, I'm kind of thinking, okay, uh, you are an author and storyteller and teacher and parent and podcaster and, and many more things you do. So I guess what is your time management secret? Maybe you can share. <laughs> well, it's the next book I'm writing, actually. Uh, I'm writing a book called Someday is Today, which answers that question because it's my most frequently asked question. But what it essentially boils down to is the idea that we just don't treat our time very well. You know, people throw away time like it's nothing. They will tell you it's their most precious commodity. And yet I just see people look at a 10 minute chunk of time and not honor it for what it could be. And so I am just really aggressive in the way that I manage my time so that every little bit of time is gonna be used in a, in a wise way. So, you know, before I got onto this call with you, I was playing uh, poker with my son. You know, he's, he's eight years old and he loves poker and we played poker. And I played poker until 7.59, one minute before I clicked the Zoom link so that we could begin this call. You know, and I said, good night, goodbye. I'll teach you the math about that later. But I didn't lose a minute. You know, I started at 7.10 and I played with him till 7.59. And I just don't sort of dither away the minutes you know, and I'm also doing things like, I don't think people treat their sleep well enough. You know, I don't sleep as much as most people. Admittedly, I sleep five or six hours a night, but I also sleep really efficiently in that when my head hits the pillow, I instantly fall asleep. And I wake up without an alarm every morning, just about every morning around 4.30 in the morning, my eyes open and I jump out of bed. And I think it's because I treat sleep with great respect, meaning I go to sleep every single night at the same time and I wake up every single morning at the same time. And I do things like I run white noise in my room so that I don't wake up in the middle of the night and the white noise triggers my brain that it is now time to sleep. And I never watch television in bed and I don't read in bed or use my phone in bed. I've trained my body that this is a place for one thing, go to sleep, sleep really well and then wake up. So a lot of times when people tell me I need eight hours of sleep, if I question them a little bit, I find out well, the first 45 minutes, you, you were lying in bed not sleeping. 
And then it sounds like you snoozed twice with a snooze alarm, which is terrible for your body to snooze. And then it sounds like you kind of lounged around in bed for 20 minutes. So you're really training your body that the bed is for a lot of things, not just sleep. So I just think that people need to be a little more mindful about the way they spend their time. And that is how we can accomplish the things we want to accomplish. Well, I tell people I write in the cracks of my life, you know, so so often I meet people who say, well, I can only write for four hours at a time and I need to be at a Starbucks and I need to have a, a latte. And I always say there were soldiers in the trenches of World War I wearing gas masks, bullets flying over their head, and they were trying to write novels in those ditches. So if you really need four hours in a Starbucks, you have a problem. You're not really a writer. So, you know, I always say I write when I have 10 minutes. I write when I have 30 minutes. I write in the morning for an hour and a half, but I will write, like if I have three minutes, my laptop is always open and I'm always ready to go. If, you know, if my wife says, I'm not ready yet, I need three more minutes before we can go. I don't waste the three minutes. I sit down and I say, all right, well, maybe I can write two good sentences in the next three minutes. And yeah. that's how I treat everything. And people think it's crazy, but I also think they're crazy. Cause I think what happens is most people live their lives thinking that someday they're going to do something. Mm -hmm. And then what happens is they just die. They run out of time and they never accomplish the things they actually want to accomplish. Yeah, no, you're right. You're hitting all the great points. <laughs> so when you say, um, I, I mean, reading your book, you said there is a difference between a written story and a verbal story. So yeah. what, what would that be like? Uh, well, there's a few differences. One is, the written story, you don't have to worry about your audience's comprehension to a great degree because they get to control the speed at which they're receiving the information. So they can read slowly, they can reread, they can look up words they don't know, they can stop and just think for a little bit about what they've just read. But if you're telling a story, you know, I always say it's like a river and, and written stories are like lakes, you know, if you read one of my books, it's like a lake because the water never changes. You just sort of get to dip in whenever you want and come back out and it's always the same. Whereas if I'm telling you a story, it's like a river. And if you have to step out of my river because I've confused you in some way or caused you to have to think, when you step back in my river, I'm already downstream. I'm still talking and you've now missed something. So when I'm telling stories out loud, I reduce my vocabulary considerably. I uh, adjust my sentence structure considerably. I'm always focused on sort of being more direct and more specific. You know, in my novels, I can be nuanced and subtle. I can describe things for long periods of time because that's what people want in a novel. They're dedicating, you know, 10 hours of their lives to my book. When I stand on a stage for five to 10 minutes, they don't want to hear about what color blue the sky was. You know, that's not a thing that they're looking for nor is that something I want to tell them. So I'm always cognizant of the fact that I need to keep them with me at all times. I can't lose them for a moment or they're gonna lose a bit of the story. And then there's just the idea of when we speak, we're terrible in terms of grammar. Like if you were to, if you were to actually you know, dictate what I'm saying right now, you would discover that we speak in run-on sentences and incomplete sentences and fragments and all of that sounds very natural and that's what you should do on a stage. I can't do that in my novels though. You know, if someone saw a, a run-on sentence in my novel, they're gonna be appalled. They're not gonna wanna read that sentence because it just looks atrocious to even dive into. Whereas here, you, you don't even notice whether I'm in a, an enormous sentence or a fragment. So all of those things come into play, I think, to a great degree. You were talking about the 
a man who uh, I guess taught you about loneliness? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's one of my stories. Yes, uh, yeah. I was um, <laughs> I was pretending to be a charity worker when I was younger, going door to door trying to find gas money for my car. Right, and a, and a man came over and or I came to a man and knocked on his door and uh, I discovered that his his wife had died of cancer, you know, and it was essentially a story about me feeling all alone because I had no one to call for help. And I resorted to this crime, really, pretending to be a charity worker to get money for gas and discovering how silly I was, that I wasn't alone at all, that I had friends. And, you know, I, I might have been stuck on that day because I was far from home, but I certainly wasn't alone in the world. You know, it's the idea that stories are not about things that happen to us. Stories are about moments where we change fundamentally. You know, I always say it's either realization or transformation. We either think about the world differently or we change in some fundamental way as a human being. And those changes, they're almost instantaneous. You know, it takes a while to get to that point and things need to build up in order to have that change actually happen. But once it happens, it really is, I used to think one thing and then instantaneously, oh my gosh, now I think a new thing. And that's how almost all change I think happens in human beings when it finally switches. Uh, and so that's what we're looking for in stories. We're looking for moments when something suddenly changed. We, something became clear, we understood ourselves or our parents or the world better, or, or we just became better or worse human beings in some way. I'm always looking for those moments. The stories ultimately have to be about me, but I'm always looking for them to connect to other human beings in as many ways as possible. I want people to feel like they understand something in the story, even if they don't understand the specifics, the sentiment, the idea, the emotions can be universally acknowledged. And I think I also like that, I believe it's a proverb, if I'm not mistaken, uh, you were talking about the facts uh, bring learning, right? Tra uh, truth bring belief and story, it will be with you, kind of, it will be in your heart. Yeah. Is that the proverb, right? Yeah, it is. It's not me, it, you know, it's old, but I love it. I just think it's so true that we remember stories. We remember stories for decades, whereas someone can tell you the most compelling fact in the world and it can be lost to you the next day. You know, you'll, you'll say, oh, I just learned something about the moon, but I can't quite remember what I learned. But, you know, you watch a movie that you love, you read a book that you love, or you hear someone tell a story that you love and they stay with you forever. It's, the, it's that power of story that can be so useful to us as human beings. So you are a fifth grade teacher. And of, yeah. of course, you write a book, so you love reading yourself. How, how do you encourage these little kids to read? Like, I know a lot of kids don't like reading. Yeah. Well, I read to them, you know, and I read Shakespeare to them. So I introduce them to stories that they're not normally hearing, you know, stories filled with intrigue and revenge and murder and you know, battles and all of that. And that gets them excited. What I really do though, is I tell them how important reading is. And I try to convince them that the most successful people in the world are the people who read and especially the kids who learn how to read. And so, you know, I talk to them about things like every day that a kid reads and you don't read, they've taken a step ahead of you, that they're advancing in life. And I stress to my students that the most valuable thing in life that you can ever have isn't money, it's choice. It's the ability to make a choice about what direction you wanna take. And so often in life, there's one of something 
and more than one person wants that thing. It might be a job, it might be a home that you're hoping to buy, you know, it might be whatever it is. So often you're in competition for this thing that you want. And the people who get these things, the people who get the one, are often the people who are best prepared, the people who took the, the actions that needed to be taken in order to get there. So I like to tie reading into obviously the love for reading. And, and I do that by reading to kids and modeling the reading and uh, finding books that they're going to love, but also by attaching purpose to it. I do think that there are some kids who are just never going to enjoy reading very much. There's some human beings who are never really gonna enjoy sitting down and turning the page. But for those people, if I can attach purpose to it, if I can say, listen, this is going to get you where you want to go in life. And if you don't do it, it's actually gonna hold you back. That can be incentivizing for kids too. So I, I, I apply both, you know, sort of the carrot and the stick to them. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I heard from kids in Tasmania today who uh -huh. were reading one of my novels, which is just amazing to me that our story I wrote at this table that I'm sitting at right now ended up in a classroom in Tasmania. You know, and so I thought, well, I'll probably write about that at some point, the joy of having children on the other side of the globe reading a story that you wrote, you know, at your dining room table. So it's, it's, been, it's been really interesting and you never know what I'm going to write about. Well, <laughs> thank you so much. I appreciate your time and uh, speaking with me and I'll be, you know, continue to read your stories and be inspired. Thank you so much yeah. for the time. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, that's all for this episode of the Miru Experience. Thank you for listening. Join me again next time. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. I also invite you to subscribe to my YouTube channel, The Miru Experience. I would love to connect with you. My email is miru at themiruexperience.com. You can always follow and connect with me on social media as well. Be you, believe in yourself, and I encourage you to lead a fulfilled life that you deserve.